as much as we are doing this for a mission-driven reason, the reality is you're not going to have a large scale change in the food system by investing small dollars. You need real dollars. And I'm talking hundreds of millions, billions, trillions of dollars that go into this space because it's multi-trillion dollar markets that we're looking to shift to a sustainable system. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Steve Molino. He is a principal at Clear Current Capital. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. I'm really happy to have you. Thank you, Chrissy. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to have this conversation. Awesome. So why don't we start with you giving us a little bit of background about you and also about the company? Yeah, sure. So right now, I'm a mission-driven investor in the sustainable food space. But before I got into this space, I've always been in the finance world. I started my career kind of working for a large multinational bank in more of a strategy and corporate development role. I then wanted to be closer to the investment side of things. So I ended up working for a firm called MetLife Investments. So the investment arm of the large insurer MetLife. And I started on the derivatives trading floor. It really wasn't something that got me going. Really interesting overall, but just not, it didn't really get me going. So I was luckily able to find another role within the investment arm on the alternative investment team. And I specifically focused on investing in private equity and venture capital funds. So we were a fund investor. So really in the asset management space is kind of where I was prior to business school and prior to the mission-driven world that I'm in now. Long story short, I won't get into it unless you want to go there, but long story short is I had a personal epiphany on what's happening in our food system. And that led to me going down a rabbit hole of the food space and sustainability around it, animal welfare around that. I really liked what I did as a private equity and VC investor. And I wanted to see if anyone was doing that in my newfound obsession area. And again, long story short, went back to business school, worked for a few firms in this space that do basically what I do now at Clear Current, and then did a short stint in strategy consulting. But Really, since I'd say 2015 on, my whole goal was to end up being an investor in sustainable food companies and really happy with where I've landed. So before we get to the details about Clear Current Capital, do you want to talk about what caused your epiphany? Did something happen? or you, and, and if it's personal, you don't have to, but I'm just curious, like what made you make that dramatic shift? Yeah. Yeah. No, for me, it's a pretty easy one. It's I watched a documentary. And people who know me have heard this before, but I watched Cowspiracy, which is more focused on the environmental impact of uh, industrial animal agriculture and how that impacts the food system, how it impacts the planet. So I went vegetarian overnight with my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. and But then it led to me really just becoming obsessed and ultimately cutting out all animal products for both environmental reasons and animal welfare reasons. Interesting. So... Now, what you're focusing on, you're saying mission-driven investor. Do you do a lot of things that have to do with this particular topic, or is it more broad for you now? Yeah, so no, it's entirely focused on this topic. So I've always been interested in the impact investing space, which in my mind, I define impact investing as 
investing for some type of measurable positive impact return alongside market rate or above market rate financial returns. So there really is no give up on the return side. Mm-hmm. But what really drives me as a person is this focus on sustainable food. It's something that has become core to who I am. So I'd probably be interested in any type of impact investing. But to be honest, unless it's focused on this space, there would always be something that would be pulling me back. So I and ClearCurrent focuses exclusively on sustainable food and helping facilitate that shift away from industrial animal agriculture. And talk about how that's been for you, like versus a broader focus. Do you feel like it's easier when you're so narrowly focused? Is it more challenging? That's a great question. And some parts are easier and some parts are more challenging. So the easier side is I've very quickly been able to become a specialist investor. So Mm -hmm. I'm an expert in anything, alternative protein, sustainable foods, anything that could potentially remove animals at scale from our food system and any of those technologies. I talk about that and I learn about that day in, day out. And that's what I've been doing for a long time at this point. So what that makes easier for me is when a company comes across my desk or a new startup passes my way, I can very quickly determine if it's something that's worth looking into deeply or if it's something that I don't really need to dig into because I know it's really not something that's impactful or differentiated or defensible. So that makes that really, really easy. The difficulty for us, though, as being specialist investors, I would assume this is the same for any specialist investor in any area, is we raise money from limited partners, right? Where we do have some of our own money invested in this as well, but the bulk of our money is from our investors, our limited partners. So because we're so narrowly focused, finding a large group of investors, a large universe of investors who want to be invested in a niche strategy, it's just more difficult. If you have a broader strategy that impacts broader food or even just climate tech, then then that, that broadens your ability to raise money. So for us, it's about finding the right mission-aligned limited partners or the non-mission-aligned limited partners who understand the opportunity in sustainable food. Finding those kinds of investors is interesting because I would imagine that when you're broader, it's more about the money. And when you're focused on something like this, it's not not about the money, obviously, but it's also about something that's more important. So are you finding people who are more passionate when you're in this space versus broad space? The short answer is yes. I mean, the vast majority of our limited partners, so our investors are mission driven in some way. So either it's animal welfare driven, like they want their vegans or vegetarians, and they care Mm -hmm. about that for the animal welfare side, or it's environmentally driven. So that's absolutely the majority of our investors. But With that said, as our firm develops and as our firm grows, we are increasingly wanting non-mission-driven investors because that's where the bulk of the capital is. And as much as we are doing this for a mission-driven reason, the reality is you are not going to have a large-scale change in the food system by investing small dollars. You need real dollars. And I'm talking hundreds of millions, billions, trillions of dollars that go into this space because it's multi-trillion dollar markets that we're looking to shift to a sustainable system. And the only way to attract non-mission-driven capital is to have returns that are aligned with traditional venture capital. Mm -hmm. And I know this from my my prior experience before I jumped into the mission-driven side. I know what institutional investors are looking for. And impact is great, but that's a nice to have. The returns Mm -hmm. are really the necessity. So for us, 
We love the mission-driven investors that have backed us and they are core to who we are. And we are like them as individuals, but to push the space forward, we need to continue to execute on the return side and broaden it out to people who are really just looking for a financial return. So when you think about the landscape today, like there's a lot of talk in the news right now, as you are, I'm sure, more aware than I am of the oversaturation of plant-based products and the criticism of brands that are plant-based, but not necessarily better for you. So has there been a shift that you can actually feel because of all that chatter? Absolutely. A hundred percent. So it's funny because for us, plant-based is one of the multiple pillars or areas that we invest in. So it's been a core part of where our firm started out at, but we've been diversifying into other investments, but just sticking with the plant-based focus you can absolutely tell that the environment has shifted. Uh, we recently put out a letter to our investors, to our LPs, and, and mentioned that we think 2023 is going to be the year of the reset for plant-based. Some people are saying it's the death of plant-based or something like that, which I find kind of funny. But what I think the reset is going to include is it will result in brands that are really not bringing anything that mm-hmm. is new or what consumers want. If they're not bringing something to the table that is offering that, then they will go under or they will merge with other brands. It's going to be a tough year or two ahead for brands that really are not innovative or and offering things that consumers actually want. And we're seeing that. So 2019 through 2021, you really saw just so much money in the space that companies that were just copycat companies of what was already out there, they were getting funded and they definitely should not have been. And it doesn't mean that any of those founders were doing anything wrong, but normally those companies wouldn't get off the ground or get very far. So those are the companies that are going to be the hardest hit right now. Do you think that's different than the, the food industry and the startup community in natural foods as a whole? It feels similar to what everyone's talking about. I think the I think plant-based is just getting a lot of attention because there was so much money flowing for so long. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it's any different than the traditional food space. And people who know me again, they would have heard me say this a million times. People forget that in quote unquote, alt protein or sustainable food, these are just food companies. They're just food companies. It doesn't matter what tech, what IP you have. At the end of the day, you're trying to get people to put something in their mouth. And they do that because it either tastes good, it's convenient, it's healthy, it's affordable. And if it doesn't hit hit on all of those areas, then telling them that this is some cool alt protein save the planet product, it doesn't change anything. That worked for like a couple of years and those years are long gone. So I think that especially for plant-based right now, entrepreneurs and new founders need to remember that at the end of the day, you're creating a company that is selling food to consumers and those traditional approaches to those businesses, they still apply. Yeah. When you think about the kinds of companies that you guys are interested in, what is the size for you? Like, where do you start and end? That's a good question. For us, we're relatively early. So what I say is, I don't like to say stages because that changes depending on the market environment. But for us, we don't do idea stage. So if you're an entrepreneur and you have something you think you want to do, that's great. Let's talk. I'd love to talk to you, but we are not going to invest at that stage. We -hmm. usually come in when there's some type of proof of concept, prototype, something of that nature. We very regularly do pre-revenue. So it's not like revenue is a requirement for us. And it's really all about one, the team is the most important for us. And then two, is this really filling a white space in the market? Or is this offering a solution that doesn't exist? 
if it exists in quantity, then it's not going to be something of interest to us. But if it doesn't exist, it's a really great team. There's some defensibility or something really interesting. And again, it has to hit on our mission of remove animals from the food system in some way. Then, then that's definitely right up our alley. I want to ask you about both of the things you talked about. Can you talk about white space for a second? Because it feels like there's only so much white space, although then something happens and you're like, oh my God, I didn't even know that was a space that could be innovated around. So how do you find enough companies in this space that work? Because it's been saturated. What's interesting and new for you guys? What kind of criteria do you use to decide if it's real, true white space that where there's an actual need? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'll answer that in, in a couple of ways. One is like the obvious product category. So is there a product category that's a white space that's untapped? And a good example of that would be, at least right now, if you look at plant-based foods or non-animal-based foods in general, plant-based eggs are still a white space. Right now, the only yeah. true player is Eat Just or Just Foods. And I think they own roughly 99% of all of the plant-based egg market. I don't wow. know what their numbers are at. Her numbers as high as $70, $80 million in revenue, which sounds great for an individual company, but for the egg space as a whole, that's nothing. That's a yeah. drop in the bucket compared to traditional eggs. So yep. eggs are just untapped. There's tons of egg companies. I've been looking at tons of egg companies wanting to make a play and haven't moved forward on one for various, various reasons, but that's a good example of a white space. But then beyond that, we are such specialists in this space that we continue to look after the product saturation is already there. And what usually occurs is these B2C focuses become less interesting to us. And we either focus more on B2B players or players that are providing some support to these companies across yeah. the value chain. And a good example of that is right now what I'm obsessing over a little bit. I don't have anything actionable at the moment, but in precision fermentation, which is a totally different category than plant-based, in precision fermentation, across the board, one of the biggest bottlenecks, or not biggest bottlenecks, but biggest costs in downstream processing. I've heard numbers as high as 40 to 60% of the total costs for a precision fermentation-made protein comes from the downstream processes. So in my mind, I'm looking for innovation along that. So this would be purely a B2B play, not a consumer-focused company. But if there's something that can bring that 60% of cost down to 20%, that's a massive, massive value add for the industry. And so that's something that would, would get me excited. Can you talk about precision fermentation for people who don't know what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll take a quick step back and then jump into precision fermentation. But in our world, some of the key areas within sustainable foods and alternative proteins are the obvious plant-based. Then there's cultivated meat or cultured meat, which is, I could talk about that as well. And then precision fermentation or fermentation in general has come up to be this major third pillar. So there's underlying categories within fermentation. Precision fermentation is one of those. And all that precision fermentation is, in layman's terms, is basically you're taking some type of microbe, think maybe it's yeast or E. coli, and normally you would feed it something and it would naturally excrete something or spit something out. A good example is in beer brewing, you feed mm -hmm. yeast different inputs and it spits out some type of alcohol. It's very common. It's a very known thing. Precision fermentation is the process of telling that microbe what to spit out. So instead of spitting out whatever it normally does, basically you're creating a, a target protein that you're trying to have it spit out. And in our world, when you're trying to replace animal products, it's quite phenomenal when you could say, go to a yeast microbe and program it to spit out animal proteins. So it could be dairy proteins like whey or the casein proteins that are needed for milk and other dairy products. 
or it could be something like albumin, which is egg white protein. Mm -hmm. And the really exciting thing here is it's the real animal product. It's not a plant-based alternative that's trying to mimic it. So they're bioidentical to the animal product. It obviously doesn't require an animal. And then from a land use standpoint, a water use standpoint, and a greenhouse gas emission standpoint, it's massively reduced. Those numbers depend on the individual micro, the company that's doing it, the processes, but numbers as high as 95 plus percent reduction across greenhouse gas emissions, 25 times less land use. So massive improvements in efficiencies and sustainability to create the same proteins that you want from an animal, just without the animal. How long is it going to be before that's like something that lots of consumers understand and adopt? What do you think? Because it's amazing. It's phenomenal. So so the question is around understanding and adopting. So usually I get the question around when is that going to be available? So around consumers understanding it and adopting it, I think it will be some time. So this technology is commonplace in the pharma space. And we actually do use it in the food space a bit now, but not to the extent that the individual consumer is used to this. Right. And I think the biggest hurdle to overcome is that when you tell a consumer that something is a real animal product without the animal, it has this massive mental confusion. And it's just like, how is that possible? You're lying. That's this. (laughs) I've seen that before. There's a I mean, how is it possible is a reasonable question. I have, course. I mean, how is it possible? Of course, I agree. It's something that is not well known, well understood. And I've seen Instagram ads for one of the precision fermentation companies that is selling in the marketplace now. And you see it says real non-animal dairy. And I'd say 90 plus percent are, this is fake. This is false yep. advertising. They should sue this company. And oh. that's visceral natural reactions by consumers. So it would be a mistake for companies or investors to discount those consumers and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Like they just, you just don't understand it because they're not doing anything wrong. You, you yeah. tell something, Hey, this is something that should be impossible. You need to educate them on it. And it's yeah. going to take time. And I think it's going to take some generations for it to be completely normal in the food system. Wow. Younger generations are increasingly showing an interest in this and an openness and desire for it. Older generations are not. So I think it's going to be to your question back, get back to that of like, when are they going to be used to this and open to it? It's going to be a little bit of time. Huh. Interesting. It sounds like it's almost too good to be true. And why isn't it coming faster? Right. There's so much talk about it. And there's so much complaining about the plant-based meat that's available now. It just sounds pretty amazing. It is. And to your question of why is it not coming faster or too good to be true? There's always something about too good to be true where something's a little off. And for us, it's really about the current costs to produce these proteins and the infrastructure and dollars required for that infrastructure that's needed to grow this space. There's a lot of time and money that needs to be invested in this to get those costs down and, and scale up this infrastructure so that it could be at commodity price points. Yeah, yeah. What we're talking about is replacing commodities. That means low yeah. prices, low yeah. margins, high volume. And historically, precision fermentation, for instance, has been used in pharma where you need low volumes that have yeah. high margins, so very high value proteins. And you don't need these massive scale infrastructure build outs for it. You need low scale because it's so profitable at the smaller scale. So that's the reality behind why it's not here yet. 
That's so cool. And I can't wait to hear more about that. I'm curious to hear you talk about how the importance of founders, because you mentioned it. I know it's important. I think that understanding what makes a great founder is always really useful for my listeners. So can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that for, for you personally? Yeah, absolutely. And for any founders that end up listening to this, I do a lot of diligence when I talk to companies around many different areas. I can tell you the only single thing that can make me interested or not interested in a company is the founders and the management team. If there's a great technology, great IP, amazing market seems defensible, but the founders aren't right, I have zero interest in the company. If it's decent and seems like there's legs there, some innovation needs to be done and some answers need to be figured out, but the team is incredible, my interest level is very high. So that's the weight that I put on founders. How I define a good founder is ill-defined. It's very difficult to quantify qualitative characteristics. A lot of investors or people will say that a good indication of a good founder is, are they a repeat entrepreneur? Have they had prior successes, prior exits, which is absolutely helpful. But for me, it goes beyond that where like, I try to really understand the individual. What are their motives for starting these companies? What do they want out of this? What type of culture are they trying to build? Are they honest with themselves about the hurdles and bottlenecks that are facing them to growing this company? Are they in it for the long haul? The list goes on and on, but through my diligence, I try to really get an understanding for who they are as people and how they operate as a leader in an organization and what their motives are. That's a very intangible answer to that question. And I know that it's a bit more honest than I think. I mean, yeah, but it's a good answer because it's one, it's interesting also because it's one of the only things where you really have to have a good gut. Like you can quantify almost every other piece of data, right? Like, is there white space? Is it profitable? Where are they from a revenue? Like all the things, right? There's a way to quantify all those things, but the founder part, you could love someone and someone else could be like, nope, not my founder. Exactly. Exactly. And Two things on that. So like one is we have tried to quantify it a bit. I've created this, I guess, investment review process where I break everything out into all the different characteristics and team is one of them. And I have underlying characteristics in there where I then rate it out of 100% and it it rolls up into a final score for the team. Actually put 50% of all of the weighting for the entire company on the team. So truly teammates embrace it. So I try to quantify it. It's always going to be subjective and incomplete. But beyond that, the other reason why team is so important is because we invest really, really early. So really early. So if this is a company that is profitable, 100 million in revenue, 20 million in EBITDA, you could bring in a new CEO, you could bring in a new team. There's probably hundreds, if not thousands of employees. It's a different situation then. At the earliest stages, the company is going to pivot one, five, 10 times And you're really trying to understand, are these the right people to help make those pivots? Are they going to work through these issues? Are they the right ones to get it to the level where this could be a real company at some point? So it's that much more important at the early stage. Sounds like it's super, super important for you guys, especially. Are there any brands that you're watching right now that are in the space that you're talking about that you are just like, yes, that's a great, awesome brand and they are going to pave the way for others? I could be biased and I could bring up companies in our portfolio, which maybe I will do that. So one of them, just because we already hit on precision fermentation, we invested in a precision fermentation dairy company called Change Foods. Uh, We feel they are paving the way 
for other companies and they're a change maker. Um, and, and one of the reasons, obviously the team is amazing, but one of the reasons is because they very early on, before they even set up concrete plans to do so, they were very focused on how do we scale this? Because back to this idea that I was talking about, that scaling this, the infrastructure isn't there. They were continually focusing on this from the earliest stages. And they recently just announced, they created a partnership with an entity in Abu Dhabi where they're going to be creating a facility where some of the CapEx, the dollars required to build this is coming from uh, their partners and some of it's going to be coming from them, but it's showing innovation around how to build out that capacity that's needed to scale these companies. And are they doing it the exact right way? Is there only one way to do it? I don't think so. There's probably many different ways to scale these companies, but they're acting as a leader and making moves forward to say, we're not waiting for someone else to figure out how to scale. We're going to do it ourselves. I think that's going to definitely pave a path for the rest of the industry. To There's going to be learnings, good or bad. And I think that they're going to be solidifying themselves as a market leader. So they're one that obviously we're watching because they're in our portfolio, but we're super, super excited about them. How involved do you guys get when you invest? It varies. I think to answer that question, one thing that I will I need to bring up for ClearCurrent is that we have an individual on our team. Her name is Kim Flores, and she was brought onto our team specifically to work with our portfolio companies. So not all venture capitalists, especially at the earliest stages, are very hands-on. And while the founder of ClearCurrent and myself have traditional finance and strategy backgrounds, which are definitely helpful and more traditional for investors, Mm -hmm. We were seeing that a lot of our companies, especially the CPG companies, they needed help around branding, advertising, Mm -hmm. not even just like how to get their brand out, but building the brand. Who are they as a company? What are the the mission, their values? They know it in their head, but how do they put that on paper and and create a brand that resonates with consumers? Kim has a multi-decade career, successful career doing this for both small and large CPG and retail clients, both within food and non-food she is instrumental for us in how we work with these companies. So she kind of comes in, acts as an extension of these teams, saves them tons of money that they would be spending with some ad agency or branding agency, which might be good, but they don't have to spend that capital. And if a company raises a million dollars and has to put 200,000 up for this work, that's a big chunk of money. So to not have to do that is great. But she also acts as a true, I don't even know how to call this, but like, a real like friend to talk to in the space because it's hard to get people to give candid advice and guidance. Uh And she really digs in with these companies much deeper than a lot of VCs or traditional investors would. So, and this is all if they need it and if they want it. If someone says, we don't want this, we don't need this, we'll give you a quarterly update or something. That's not the type of founder we generally invest in, but that's okay. We're not going to push this on anyone, but we do have the resources through Kim, that kind of differentiate us from other early stage investors. Yeah, that's interesting and helpful. I'm sure really useful because it is a big, it's one of the most important things you can do, right? I'm a branding person and I also think that it's unfortunate that some people jump over that step at the beginning because they can't afford it or don't know what to do. And then they figure it out when it's already sort of moving and it's kind of, yeah, it seems like one of the most important things. So I'm sure that's an incredible resource that you're sharing with your founders. I want to be sensitive to your time, but I want to hear some advice you have for founders and people who are thinking about what should they do and how do they go about it? And I'm stuck now, what? It feels terrible. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, that's a great question. I've been rejected I mean, seven million times. <laughs> I mean, it all depends where the founder is in their company life cycle. If you're thinking about starting a company, you haven't done it yet. My real advice is one: make sure that you truly believe in whatever you're going to try to build. It's going to be really difficult, and it's not going to be a straight up yeah. and to the right story. So when things are tough, you want to be doing it for the right reasons, and you want to care about it. And then the second is, please, please only create a company if you're creating a solution to a problem that exists, but the solution doesn't already exist. It's really difficult for investors to get excited if what you're bringing to the market is already out there and it's only slightly different. So you could save yourself a lot of heartache if you either focus on solutions that are needed and not out there, or just don't maybe join a company instead if the solution's already there. If you've already founded the company and you're up and running and you're trying to raise money or you're trying to get in front of the right people or get the story back on track, this is as generic as advice as it gets, but don't forget how important storytelling is to your journey. Yeah. So everything I've mentioned about there's a problem, a solution, are you feeling the need in the marketplace from whether it's a coffee chat with a, an investor or someone out there or even a reporter, or it's an actual presentation that you're giving. The way that you present yourself, the company, the vision, the solution, it's incredibly important because always treat it as someone is trying to understand your story and fill in the gaps to what they don't know. So mm -hmm. the more confusing it is or less clear it is, the harder it is for them to be on board with your vision and buy into it. But the more clear you are and the more excitement you could build around whatever solution you're bringing to the market the easier it's going to be to get people on your team and backing you. So don't underestimate the power of storytelling. I think that's really important too. It's like salesmanship. It's important. And I think that you could have the point of view. I've seen it with some people. This is an awesome product. It's awesome, right? But not being able to convince someone else and sell them on why it's awesome and how it's awesome. It's just such an undervalued skill in general in the world. I mean, in every presentation, actually, right? You're going in and you're trying to convince someone of your point of view. It has to make sense because leaving them confused, like, where are you then, right? If you leave someone yes. confused, you're not getting the money. I agree. It, it has yeah. to make sense. And it also has to get them excited. They have to yep. get it and they have to be really excited by it. So like going into details and you know, there's a science backing or tech backing to whatever you're working on and trying to go into that. It might not work for the majority of conversations and that's not really what's going to get most people excited. So yeah. I, I agree yeah. with you. Yeah, I think that's really important. I want to talk about one more thing really quickly, if you have a minute. I want to talk about mentoring because I know that you do that and I do also. And I think it's so important and exciting. And to me, it's what makes this natural foods community so much better than most of the businesses you could get into because there's really a sense of collaborating. And I think that, you know, I've seen a lot of founders working with other founders to give them advice and help them and the egos seem less big and and brutal. So I'm curious to hear about your experience with that. My role as a mentor for various organizations is, is probably one of the things I love the most because I love my role as a venture capitalist. I love looking at new companies and potentially investing in them. But what comes with that is obviously this idea of there is a potential transaction or long-term relationship that you're building that involves money and, and growing the companies or helping them grow. And it's harder to have candid conversations that way and really okay. give guidance. 
the mentorship right. roles that I do. So I'm a mentor for the Good Food Institute, for ProVeg Incubator out of Berlin, for the Rising Tide Collective, for various other organizations. And it's a lot of fun to have a true candid conversation with founders where they say, this is an actual problem I'm having. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to gloss over the issues. I really want your guidance and your help. And for them to know that I'm also not evaluating them for potential investment, it creates a really good conversation, a good bond with the company. And also to be clear, we're super selective in who we invest in. We make three, maybe four investments a year. But that doesn't mean I hate every company that I pass on. Sometimes I love it. It just, it doesn't work for us for internal reasons, for things that are specific to ClearCurrent. So to be able to help those founders as well, it helps push the mission forward. It helps increase the impact. And I love that. I think it's interesting. And I think it's a good note for people to take. Like having mentors doesn't mean you don't know what you're doing. It means that you're open to understanding that there have been people who've done this already and I think mm-hmm. that's hard for a lot of people because, you know, most founders are pretty big personalities and, right, you're not doing it because you're a timid introvert that, right, you're doing it because you believe in something and you're compelled and you want to sound really smart. And and I think that that could be a potential mistake that people make, not asking for help, not going and getting mentored because they feel like it'll make them look like they don't know what they're doing. I think it's the opposite in a lot of ways. I agree fully. And I think some of the founders that I respect the most even the ones that I'm not mentoring, but the ones that I'm actually diligencing, if I ask them a question, they say, I don't know. Or if I tell them something like, oh, that's so interesting. Can you tell me more about that? Or do you have a connection to this area? Because we don't. Can you put me in touch with someone? Can you help me out? All that that shows me is that they're very honest with what they're good at and what resources they have and what they're not good at and what resources they don't have. And it makes me think that they're coachable and that if something's going wrong, they will ask for help. Mm-hmm. which as an investor, I know, especially at the early stages, something's going to go wrong Yeah, all the time. Something's going to go wrong, right? At yeah. some point, things are going to go wrong. And what I would rather have is that our companies, our founders reach out to us for help. I can't help companies if they don't tell me that something's wrong. And if they act like everything's perfect, and then at the 11th hour, they say, we need yeah. money or we need an introduction and there's not enough time, then it's out of my control. But yeah. if I know months in advance that I can help them, that's amazing. And that's what I want. I want to be helping them if I can. So transparency and honesty with themselves and what they know and don't know, that's the the best. Yep. Awesome. Anything else before we wrap up? This is so great. You've given so much good information. Your energy is amazing, especially (laughs) at the end of a long day. I think it's so great. And I think that's probably really appealing to some of the brands that are working with you because, you know, it's nice to talk to someone who's just open and energetic and excited about the space. No, yeah. I appreciate that. And honestly, I just love what I do. I love it comes through loud and clear. It's fantastic. Nothing really to add. I've loved this conversation. This has been, Me been too. great. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. This is so great. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.